Let's open our Bibles for this morning's sermon and allow God's Word to speak to us, to shape us. Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, it's the third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of the New Testament. As you're turning, uh, let me encourage uh, those uh, who may be watching at home or watching later on uh, to visit with us here at the church. Come, our services are open And we also have a Sunday evening service at 6 p.m. It's informal, it's downstairs, and we do a lot of singing of hymns. If you want to celebrate God and and hear truth expressed in poetic songs and praise God, Sunday night is the place to be. So join us uh, then as well. In God's Word, it's our third sermon in this series as we've begun the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start this morning in chapter 1 at verse 26 and go through verse 38. This is the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he, said to her, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May God bless the reading, hearing, and believing of his holy word. Amen. Amen. Well, we've just started the Gospel of Luke, and we already have the second angelic birth announcement. It's an interesting way to begin a story. You might think that the Gospel of Luke is just about Jesus. Well, it starts with somebody before Jesus. Last week, we heard this angelic announcement about the birth of John the Baptist to his parents, Elizabeth and Zachariah. It was a wonderful story with some wonderful aspects to it. An angel, kind of a miracle, and a prophecy that came true, all sorts of things. Zechariah, who had, in his doubt, asked for a sign, he got a sign. 
And when the day came, there was much joy at the birth of John the Baptist, and everybody was talking about it. But here comes a second angelic announcement. Same angel, Gabriel. We won't talk about him. We did that last week. And a second annunciation of an unexpected birth. Although there are many similarities between John the Baptist's annunciation and that of Jesus to be born, there are also some differences. The similarities are profound and compelling. It's like a double witness in Scripture saying God is about to act. God is about to do the greatest thing that's ever happened in human history. The incarnation. And so it's not just one angelic announcement, but two. He's sending someone in advance to prepare And then he gives news to Mary. But it's interesting in the differences here, how much of a spotlight was on John the Baptist and very little spotlight on this announcement to Mary. As the pastor of Geneva, John Calvin said, it was a wonderful dispensation of divine purpose and far removed from the ordinary judgment of men that God determined to make the beginning of the generation of the herald more well-known than that of his own son. The prophecy respecting John the Baptist was published in the temple and universally known. Christ is promised to a virgin in an obscure town of Judea, And this prophecy remains buried in the heart of a young woman for decades. What is God doing? Everybody knew Zechariah was mute and then he could speak and they knew the story, an angel in the temple. Here comes John the Baptist and when he grew up and began his public ministry, everybody says, well, there was that major birth announcement. And it all fit with Jesus. The world does not hear this announcement. Mary treasures these things in her heart. It's Mary and Joseph alone. And the child would grow. And perhaps the details you and I are about to read in Holy Scripture were never told until Luke sat down with Mary, interviewed her. I'm writing a gospel. The Spirit of God led me to you. Tell me of those things, Mary. And she opened her heart and shared this treasured report. It's very interesting. And I don't want us to miss this distinctive. So let's begin by looking at these humble yet holy beginnings. Humble yet holy beginnings. The lowly and unassuming manner of the Savior's arrival is displayed here in Luke. We're told first that the angel Gabriel went out of town. He didn't show up in the temple. He went north, not just to the northern suburbs of Jerusalem, not just up by the Sea of Galilee, but even more so into the country away from the Sea of Galilee, up north, the region of Galilee, the city of Nazareth. And city is being generous. There weren't too many terms to use. City was a little bit larger. Village was a little bit smaller. Nazareth was a place of about 400, 500 souls. 
We might call it a neighborhood. I mean, there's 700 houses in my neighborhood, and it's still just a neighborhood. Nazareth. It's in Galilee. And there's not much history there. You search Jewish literature of the day, nothing much happened in Nazareth in particular. This region of Galilee, this northernmost region of ancient Palestine, in some respects you couldn't really get farther away from Jerusalem if you tried. There was a lack of prominence for Galilee in general and Nazareth in particular. But it was there the angel went and it was there the Lord decided and found a young righteous woman named Mary. It's interesting we're not even told her name right away. We're told a few things about her, nothing of her parents, but we're told that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. We hear his name first, and he's of the house of David, which we file away. What would it mean to be of the family tree of King David? Well, I imagine it was a a bit of pride there, much as some Americans say, oh, I can trace my ancestry to the pilgrim forefathers. And that's a big deal, or it was. We just know something about Joseph. And finally, we come to this woman and hear her name, Mary. What does it mean that she was betrothed? It means that she was engaged, but it means such, so much more than engagement, right? We know today if somebody gets engaged, sometimes there's a ring on their finger and they set a wedding date and it's the engagement period. Betrothal was much more serious. Betrothal in the ancient world was a covenant, that was made between two parties and could only be broken formally by a divorce with grounds for divorce in the ancient world. It meant that this had been entered into both parties and it was serious, although there was no consummation of any vows. It would be about a year's period of time where the woman and the man would live apart and she would remain chaste. She'd remain a virgin to her betrothed. Now we're told two things about Mary, and when the Bible emphasizes it, we ought to pay attention, right? We're told twice that she was a virgin, and the scriptures use the explicit word for virgin here in the Greek. Of course, that would be expected. Mary's young, and she's betrothed. How young? Well, between the ages of 13 and 18, we would call her a teenager. That's pretty profound. I have a teenage daughter. She's a virgin. The emphasis there does raise our interest. It's, it would be assumed normally, so why is it mentioned, and why is it mentioned twice? If for nothing else than to begin to signal to the reader of this gospel that not only is God at work, Remember, he was sending the messenger to prepare the way and the Lord's Messiah was coming. (laughs) Okay, the Lord's Messiah is going to come eventually. Well, he may be coming soon because now we're emphasizing a virgin and an angel is visiting a virgin and people begin thinking of the scriptural promise of Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Hopefully you know the address of that prophecy. It's one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament from Isaiah 7, verse 14. We don't have time to unpack the original context that it was given. Israel was in a tough place and they were looking for a sign, but they didn't ask for a sign. So 
the prophet says, the Lord will give you a sign. God offered up that prophecy as a sign for the people then and a greater sign for the historic arrival of Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. So it was on the radar, not just of prophecy buffs, but of all the Israelites who were longing for the Messiah to come, born of a virgin. And yes, you might run into some liberal Protestants who say, well, you know, the word in Hebrew was made in in Isaiah 7:14. They may do a dance around it, but you tell them that there are plenty of godly scholars and your pastor would agree the word means virgin. A mar- an unmarried maiden who had not had any relationships with a man. And we know that even more so when you get to the New Testament age. Remember the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. It's not an inspired translation. It's a translation like we have it in our language in English. But when they translated Isaiah 7.14 from Alma, the Hebrew word for young, chaste maiden. What word did they pick in Greek when they wrote Isaiah 7.14 in Greek? They picked this explicit word for virgin because the Jews who made that translation not messianic Christians the Jews who made that translation knew full well what the prophecy required and Luke taps into that Isaiah 7:14 is now on the front burner hello Mary you are a virgin and God is pleased with you this virgin in Nazareth of Galilee. There's this angelic greeting. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary had been an object of the grace of God. What does it mean to be favored? Well, we we still use the phrase pretty much in the same way today, right? To favor someone, to be an object of a gracious visitation. You know, one of the scary things that can happen to a pastor on Sunday morning, well, besides losing his sermon notes, if you see Chad Granger, ask him about the time he took them from the pulpit. That's a great story. We've got to keep that alive. No, one thing that can trouble a pastor is when he sees, especially in the summer weeks, all of a sudden someone coming in, oh wait, that's the pastor from the big church across town. Or that's that famous pastor from out of town. What is he doing here? I am going to preach to some famous pastor. I feel both blessed and challenged. Blessed, wow, he thinks he's going to visit me. Wow, that's a big deal. He picked this church to visit on his day off, but then I better not mess up in preaching. Here the angel tries to convey to Mary God has drawn near to you because he's gracious towards you. You are an object of his grace and he's pleased with you. We have to clarify, though, that the grace of God is not flowing out of Mary. We have to oppose, hear me, we have to oppose the Roman Catholic teaching that takes a prayer that was never in the Bible and it's not very biblical. This prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace. Because that Roman Catholic prayer treats Mary as though she was the source of grace, that she was full of grace, that she was not a sinner like anyone else. And that's simply not true. 
Just a few verses later in Luke 46, 1, 46 and 47, Mary herself would sing God's praises and say this, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary was a woman born to the family tree of Adam and Eve, born with her own sinful nature. Mary needed a Savior. Mary is not full of grace. She is not a co-redemptrix. My friends, listen. Protestants may undervalue Mary, and Roman Catholics overvalue Mary. We can fix our problem today, but we need to be careful with our Roman Catholic friends and wean them away from this misunderstanding. It's harmful, and listen, it detracts from the role of Jesus as Savior alone. His power, His righteousness alone is what a Christian needs to be saved. We ought not to pray to Mary. If you have questions about this, get in touch with me. Talk to one of the elders. We live in an area where there are a lot of neighbors that are Roman Catholic, but they have the same Bible. And this Bible teaches that Mary needed a Savior. And the favor God showed her because she needed the grace of God like anyone else. That being said, let's keep looking. These humble beginnings also include Mary's modest reaction You see, after the angel comes and greets her, what what happens? Uh, Verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That tells us immediately that here is a teenage Hebrew girl, young woman, who is very mature for her age, who has faith in God that she would not panic at the sight of an angel. She's not panicking. She's not wigging out. She's not hysterical. Usually the angel has to say, do not fear because someone's losing it. Mary seems to be steady. And what does it tell us? She's thoughtful. At the approach of the angel, she's thinking. She is troubled. Are you sure you have the right house? I am but a humble Hebrew maid. and I'm not in the temple. I'm not a priest serving at the altar of insight. And since she'd probably heard the story too. What are you doing here? What sort of greeting is this? It's the voice of humility. It's the voice of faith. As Leon Morris, excellent scholar, said, evidently in her modesty, she did not understand why a heavenly visitant should greet her in such exalted terms. Wow. And I would tell you further to watch how many times in the scriptures does an angel, the angel of the Lord or any other angel, appear to a woman. The way the Bible's written, God primarily makes himself known to those men in the Old Testament. You hear the visions, you see the angels coming. Jacob even wrestled with the angel of the Lord. But there's something very special here. 
And it's a beautiful moment not to be missed. As one writer said, no woman was ever so highly honored as the mother of our Lord Jesus, Mary of Nazareth. We should really get to know her. We should esteem her. She should be a model for believers. And there's more to come. But these are just the humble yet holy beginnings. Let's look more specifically at this announcement. Because after the greeting, the angel goes on to speak. And in the content of this announcement, there's some real meat. Some deep, theologically profound and historically earth-shattering truth is about to fall on this young maiden's ears as the angel continues to speak in verse 31. And behold... He gave her an answer. Don't be afraid. You found favor with God. But then he gives the the message. Behold, he speaks on behalf of God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him. The throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forevermore and of his kingdom. There will be no end. That's quite a message. That's huge. And the message itself could be a series of sermons on each of those phrases. Let me try to condense it at least just under a couple of headings. First, we're told about the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. Verse 31, you will conceive a baby in your womb. Okay, Mary seems to be a thoughtful, smart young lady. She knows where babies come from and how that works. And in the ancient world where many people often lived in one-room houses or were around domesticated animals more, The facts of nature were very well known. And she says, what? She, She responds, and we'll talk about her response, but the message to her is that she's going to be pregnant with a baby. Okay, she's trying to figure that out, but what does the angel want to communicate? Something supernatural is going to happen to you. And it's not mythological. I don't know if you ever encounter other liberal Christians or critics of Christianity. They say, oh, the ancient world is filled with mythology. And the Greeks and the Romans, they all have stories about the gods having sex with earthly beings and they have children. That's not what's happening here. This is not myth or legend. It's not couched in once upon a time. This is a historic report, a place, a name, a family, facts that can be attested to. This is being written while some of those eyewitnesses are still alive. This is not myth. It will be supernatural. The incarnation itself, it will be a mystery In a few minutes, he'll answer her question how it's going to happen, but he just declares it. You will be with child. He will be the son of God. We call that the incarnation. Isaiah 7.14 called it Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrated at Christmas the incarnation. 
What does that word incarnation mean? It comes from the Latin. It, it means enfleshment, carne, flesh, to come into flesh. God who is spirit, he's alive, he's a spiritual being, will come. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal son, will become a human being as well as the son of God. He will be the son of man and he'll be born. He'll come through the birth canal. He will emerge with fingerprints and eyelashes. And at just the right age, he will giggle and smile at his mother Mary. You will bear a son. It will be the incarnation. There's a mystery here. The great uh, generational theologian uh, just of the last hundred years, Donald MacLeod over in Scotland, said the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of the incarnation. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, he says, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. I thought that was a little bit of in-your-face theology. The angel says, matter of fact, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. Mary, you are that woman. The incarnation's going to happen. It's the greatest event in recorded history. In all of history, that somehow God would take on flesh and dwell among us. That's where John begins his gospel too, but he does it in the great language that copies the book of Genesis. So the content of this announcement speaks of the incarnation, but it also speaks of a savior, the promised savior. Did you see that? You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name, what? Jesus? That's the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. The Old Testament name Joshua was the similar version to the New Testament name Jesus. And the angel is saying, you shall call your son Savior. You shall call him the promised one. She understands that. In a couple weeks when we get to her song, her theology is rich and shows that she understands that as she has reflected on that name. Why that name? Because he will save his people from their sins. If we were reading Matthew's gospel, we would hear the angel's declaration to Joseph, which confirms these very things in that special visitation. The promised Savior, Mary, is who we're talking about. Philip Ryken says, Mary was given the greatest honor that any woman has ever been given. She was chosen to be the mother of Jesus. And her lowly estate was part of God's plan. By choosing Mary, he writes, God was beginning to show what humiliation his son would have to endure for the salvation of sinners. Why would Jesus be born on the road in a stable and laid in a, in a food bowl of animals, a manger? 
Well, you begin to see the pattern as the gospel unfolds that the Savior of the world comes into the world right at the lowest common denominator possible, in obscurity, in poverty, we could say, with no pretense that he might be Savior to all men. He's not born to the daughter of the high priest in Jerusalem and goes to Jerusalem Mount Sinai Hospital. God communicates his intent even in the mode of our Savior's arrival, even in the the woman that is chosen to be his mother. And these circumstances, they all should convey that picture to us of God's stooping down to save his great grace. There's a third content to the message here, and it's the dominant point of the angel's message, right? He mentions Jesus in passing. He mentions the birth in passing. But doesn't he spend a couple moments here describing Jesus as king and the kingdom? Verse 32, he will be great, be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forevermore. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's kingdom talk. A kingdom perspective. God is keeping his promises that he once made with David. God entered into a covenant with David. Maybe you don't remember that. You can turn with me or note this text from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7, 16. 2 Samuel 7, 16. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, God's making a covenant with David. He's further enlarging that, that plan that they began. And the Lord said to King David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God said it. God promised it to David. 2 Samuel seven sixteen, And in other places. And it's even mentioned in Psalm 89 and other places. The Davidic promise. Someone from the line of David will reign over God's people. Solomon did for a while. Then the kingdom splits and the lineage gets diluted. And then there's captivity. And who's going to be king after captivity? It gets all murky. And you know what? Do you know how long it had been since there was a king in Israel? 600 years. That's kind of a long time to wait. 600 years. Since the days of David. And God's people, not only did they not have their king, they didn't really even have a steward or somebody else to lead them. The Sanhedrin was taken, had a lot of its powers taken away because they'd been under captivity since they last had a king. What was it? They had, uh, uh, they're overrun by Babylon. And after that came Persia. And after that came Syria. And now God's people were under the thumb of Rome. And Caesar had even arranged for some guy named Herod the Great, the wicked Herod the Great, to be reigning in Jerusalem as the angel speaks to Mary. Kingdom talk. Yeah, I heard about that in history class. It's been a long time. 600 years. Yet, Jesus, Mary, the baby you will bear, 
will be that king. And it says, he will reign forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is king. And he tried to explain to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom is God's rule in the hearts and minds of his people. And his kingdom is growing. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom will grow until the king returns. And that's the end. And every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Kingdom talk. It's a lot for Mary to take in. But the moment has come. The moment which each and every little Jewish boy and girl prayed for as they watched a Roman soldier walk by, as they watched their people discouraged and without the leadership. They knew the promise of Scripture. Oh, God, Adonai, send the Messiah, send the anointed one. And now he was coming. Well, let's look at some of the reactions to this. Uh, that, that's a huge announcement that the angel lays on Mary. This is a significant way to begin the gospel of Jesus, telling us that God has big plans for this person named Jesus. If you were reading this for the first time, you would be thinking, wow, this is going to be great. And it is. But it's different than what worldly men expected. Mary's first question, to get back to our text, Luke chapter 1 and verse uh, 34 Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Good question. And by the way, I hope you have a footnote. The word virgin isn't there like it was earlier. It was repeated twice, the explicit Greek word for virgin. virgin. Here, as your footnote should tell you, there's a Hebrew phrase. There's an idiom. It says, literally, since I do not know a man. And yes, if you know something of the Bible, the Bible's way to talk about intercourse and sexual relations is to talk about knowing a man. You know, like a so-and-so knew his wife again, and they conceived a son. That's the way the Bible talked. It's, it, it, it's, it's polite language. A delicate expression, if you will, for that physical reality. And Mary says, I've not known a man. I haven't done that. How? And let me pause because many of you remember last week we talked about the angel announcing to Zechariah. And when Zechariah said, really? You know, I'm too old for this. We have to understand that the two questions are different. Zechariah was rebuked for his question. Mary's question, how, is different. Zechariah, back in uh, verse 18 basically said this how shall what how shall I know this he wasn't at first talking about the mechanics but he first blurted out his disbelief I hear you talking Gabe but how can I believe what you're saying that's different That was questioning the truth of the word of God and the messenger of God. He wasn't sure whether to believe the angel or not. And so he gets it a little bit hard. There's there's a rebuke in how he's treated. Mary's question is what? Mary's question is different. How will this be since I'm a virgin? She's not asking about whether she should believe it or not. She believes it. 
And she used, how will this be? She doesn't say, how might this be? She knows it's going to happen. She's accepted that. But she's curious. Okay, are, are there any instructions for me? How, how is this going to happen? It's a different question. Faith seeking understanding. And you know what? You, you might not have noticed the differences because we're not always careful readers of Scripture, are we? Admit it. When you saw Zechariah, you, you maybe glossed over that word no. And isn't it interesting when you know the literal version of Mary's response, there's almost a pun, a play on words. Zechariah said, oh, how can I know that's true? Questioning the messenger, Mary says, how will this be, since I believe it's going to happen, since I haven't known a man? Gnosko, the same Greek word in both, but one, a statement of disbelief. I don't know that I can believe you. And Mary said, I believe you, but I don't know how it will happen. I, I linger over that because a lot of times we read something in God's word and we struggle with its application. The Bible tells us to be truthful at all times. Well, what do I say if? We believe the word, but we wrestle with how to obey it. Or that command, if an unbeliever presses you for your cloak, give him your tunic as well. If he presses you to go one mile, go with him too. How much do I have to endure with unbelievers to reach them for Jesus? We believe God's word and want to obey it, but we want to know how do I apply it? Where do I get the wisdom? That's Mary's question. That's faith seeking understanding. That's okay. Well, let's get to the answer. The first point here in this response segment, how will I know? And the angel does not rebuke her for that question, does he? He simply answers. He replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I like that translation. It's accurate. Overshadow. It's an expression of, of, of this divine activity of God. And it was the same language used back in the Old Testament. According to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Exodus chapter 40. Do you remember in that chapter, the Shekinah glory of God descended upon the temple? What was that? Clouds of Shekinah glory. It wasn't a, a, a meteorological event. The presence of God did what? Came to the temple, right? And how did he know the presence of God was in the temple? The Shekinah glory was there. Hard to miss. Pretty astounding. God dwelling among them in the tabernacle. The Greek translation of that passage uses this same word for overshadow. Mary... God will have his presence come upon you. He will overshadow you. One scholar, David Lyle Jeffrey, went so far as to suggest that the womb of Mary would become a tabernacle of sorts with the Holy Son of God dwelling there in her womb. That's profound. It's not explicit. It's not graphic. It's theologically explained. God will do this himself 
God the Holy Spirit. And oh, how much time we could have looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. We'll save that for another time. But you'll see in the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that he highlights time and time again is the role of the Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes as we begin this series, keep an eye out, not just for women of the Bible like Mary and others, but keep an eye out for the Holy Spirit and how Luke is really the evangelist who promotes the Holy Spirit's work. How overshadowed. Second part of the reaction here is encouragement because the angel continues to speak. Perhaps he sees something on Mary's face as she's still wondering how. And she's, her faith is seeking understanding. The, the angel goes on to say in verse 36, and behold, your rel- behold, a new announcement. Here comes another pronouncement, Mary. Listen, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Ding! Mary learns of that. And next week, she's going to go visit Elizabeth. The sign given to Mary is this. You know your really old cousin, the one that's well past childbearing years? She's going to have a baby. So that's a sign to you that God can do this. He will overshadow you. And that encourages Mary. Do you see her response? Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. She comes away encouraged. She submits to this news. That she will be overshadowed. She understands this sign and this sign signifies to her the power of God. Getting back to some of the insights of John Calvin here. He said, the treasure of this mystery was committed by God, by the angel to a virgin in such a manner that at length, when the promised time came, it might be communicated to all the godly. It was kind of, for Mary, a guardianship. But whether for trying the humility of faith or restraining the pride of the ungodly, it was best adapted. Let us learn, even when the reason does not immediately appear, to submit modestly to God. And let us not be ashamed to receive instruction from him who carried her in her womb, Christ, the wisdom of God. There's nothing, Calvin continues, there's nothing which we should be more careful to avoid than the proud contempt that would deprive us of the knowledge of such a secret, which God has purposely hidden from the wise and prudent and revealed to the humble and to babes. What is Calvin saying? We should learn from Mary being given these amazing truths to bear, even if she did not fully understand them, she believed them and trusted. She was given a sign. She doesn't know how Elizabeth conceived, but she's given that and she responds modestly and humbly. And the third part of the response here is just amazing. As the angel concludes in verse 37, Nothing will be impossible with God. He spells it out for Mary. Mary, as I've spoken to you, as now I've told you about Elizabeth, realize that whether we're talking about babies or the salvation of Israel or the world, nothing will be impossible with God. I say this is a grounded point here. There's the overshadowed, there's the encouraged, now the angel gives this grounded point. What do I mean by grounded a ground, a foundation for faith. 
He gives explicit truth to continually respond to her faith. There's proof when she sees Elizabeth and the angel's announcement is confirmed. Let me pause and ask, is there anything in your life that seems impossible? Is there something that you don't think could ever happen? Something that could be forgiven? A relationship that you think could never be restored or mended? Suffering that you don't think you can endure or will never end? Do you see something in the category of impossible that God has brought into your life? Just remember that God is God of the possible. Nothing is impossible with him. The scriptures say it on several occasions. This is one of them. To Mary's believing ears, that truth will see her through. See her through the heartache of his arrest and his crucifixion. Nothing is impossible for this God. We should remember that and trust the power of God, the God of the virgin birth, the God of the incarnation. Well, in conclusion, three exhortations, three things to clarify and take away for sure. Number one, God keeps his word. God keeps his word, whether it's been a few days or a few hundred years. The word of God is fulfilled here. Isaiah 7, the covenant with David from 2 Samuel, and so much more. God will keep his word. Although Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth, they say, well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. What if they'd gone to the synagogue in Nazareth one day and, and heard uh, uh, Micah 5.2 about Bethlehem and they're scratching their ear. Well, how's that going to work? They don't worry. They trust God. And lo and behold, some pagan ruler says, there's a census. You've got to go to your hometown of your ancestors to be born. God will arrange so that his word is fulfilled. God keeps his word. God has never broken his word. We need to tell that to the world. And we need to tell the world that part of God's word includes the Gentiles. Why do you think he plucked a young girl from Nazareth in Galilee? Because Galilee was considered the most Gentile of all the areas in Israel without going beyond a descendant of David, that that tells something. In fact, Galilee was called by the rest of Israel, Galilee of the Gentiles, the borderland. You might as well be in the world if you're in Galilee. And that's where the Savior comes from, to communicate God keeps his word, his word to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All nations. Second exhortation, God's power is without limit. I love what John Ryle of Liverpool said in his preaching passion. Here you go, nothing is impossible with God. He reminds us there is no sin too black and too bad to be pardoned. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. The heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh. He says there is no work too hard for a believer to do. We may do all things through Christ who strengthens us. There is no trial too hard to be borne. The grace of God is sufficient for us. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. God's words in Christ shall never pass away. 
what he has promised he is able to perform. There is no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. When God is for us, who can be against us? And J.C. Ryle concludes, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of divine omnipotence. Nothing is impossible with my God. We rest on him. There's one further exhortation here. In this story, this showing us of Mary and disclosing this conversation, God gives us a model response of faith. God shows us how we too ought to walk. Mary here is a model of faith. She may be concerned, what is Joseph going to say? I'm betrothed. How can I be found with child? What if I'm stoned? What if people don't believe me? What if they misunderstand? Mary is not only quietly submissive, she is quietly heroic. That's what Leon Morris says. It's amazing. She submits to God and trusts God because that's her faith in God. And that's a model for us. Even though we don't understand the whole plan, the whole picture, and how it will come about. Faith. We walk by faith. We're told by the writer of Hebrews... Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews 11.6, the writer goes on to say, without faith, he's going to tell us something's impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What have we been looking at today? The impossible foretold. God says, I can do that. And I will do that. I am doing that. So we need to take our impossible and trust the God with whom nothing is impossible. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word thrills us. There's so much here for our minds to grasp And our faith to hold on to. We thank you that we have this historic faith. Confirmed by witnesses and the testimony of the historical record. Jesus came. He lived. He died. And his tomb is empty. He lives today. He's changing lives. And the new birth. It's impossible for us to enter into our mother's womb a second time. But the new birth is possible. Because of your saving power through Jesus to sinners such as us. Oh, Father, give fresh hope for believers today. Break into this troubled, darkening world with the light of good news, with the 